0: Hello and welcome to At the Pass. I'm your host, Adam Veterel, and this is a show about the Ottawa restaurant scene for the Ottawa restaurant scene. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to this special COVID edition of At the Pass. Uh, I've been back and forth about whether I was going to do one of these or not. I actually recorded one and then didn't release it. The problem is there's still so much that's unknown, and there's actually It changes every day. So every time I thought about recording something, I'd realize that it would be irrelevant in a week or so, or maybe even just a couple days. But now so many people are speculating, especially about our industry, that I feel like I have something I can offer. I feel like my perspective might not be the same as everyone else's, so it might be worth putting it out there. I can't know what is going to happen. No one can. And I can't speak to every restaurant situation because there's far too many variables involved for each business. What I can do is try to predict how the industry is going to look as a whole When all of this is over, based on the information that I have now, this could all change tomorrow and I'll address some of the ways I think it could change, but this is my best guess. The first question has to be, how long will this last? What the government decides to do and what the virus decides to do are two different things, although thankfully for us, it seems that at the moment, our provincial and federal governments are taking their cues from science and experts who've done an incredible job so far. As I write this, the curve has been flattened and hospitals are well within their capacity to help the people who need it. Although they currently don't have enough PPEs to do that without putting themselves at risk, but that's a topic for a totally different podcast. My wife is an MP who's currently awaiting deployment to cover for healthcare workers who get sick, but there has not yet been a need for the quote, second line, which is a good sign. Compare this to Italy, where members of my family watch the entire healthcare infrastructure get completely overwhelmed as dramatically as anything you would see in a war. The army's dragging bodies out of hospitals in Milan in the middle of the night. And that could have easily been us if our government didn't take quick action. So, it would obviously be irresponsible for the government to end the quarantine early and undo all the sacrifices we've already made, only to open the floodgates now. I don't believe they would do this, so there's really two ways this ends. I'll start by addressing a way it will not end. This is a sentiment I've heard a lot. There are a lot of people saying if we all just quarantine for two weeks or three weeks, this will go away. That is unfortunately not true. Once we leave our isolation, those of us who didn't get ill are still vulnerable, and the whole thing can spiral out of control again. You cannot wait out a virus. So the first way this could end is a vaccine, which even if they discover it tomorrow, the best case scenario for widespread distribution is 18 months. I say best case because once it exists, the current geopolitical reality will really play a role in who gets it and how fast. If China or the U.S. discovers it, can we really trust them to do what's in everyone else's best interest? Best case is Canada finding it. We have a long history of pioneering medical discoveries. We gave the world insulin, epilepsy treatment, polio vaccine, and the cure for Hodgson's disease. Right now, there's a company out of Vancouver that seems to be making progress. So it's not crazy to think we could do it again. That would be really good news, not just for us, but for everyone. The second and by far the most likely way this ends is herd immunity. Once we all get it, it's done. Thanks to social distancing, this could take up to a year. This is obviously a disaster for the restaurant industry. There are no other good scenarios. There will be restaurateurs pushing to end this early and they'll probably drop some bullshit like the cure is worse than disease or whatever they're going to say, but they're not thinking it through. If a bunch of people go out one day and there's a huge wave of new cases flooding the ERs, it's going to freak the public out and justifiably so. People are not going to want to eat at a restaurant after this. And that fear is going to last a long time. It is absolutely in our best interest for the government to be as cautious as possible. No matter how bad it hurts, so that they don't erase any trust when the time comes for life to go back to normal. There is a third way that I didn't mention because it's a little bit of a pipe dream. If tests that showed someone had the virus already were widely available, we could start slowly allowing people back into normal life once they recover. This is being called the test and trace method, and there's a huge amount of problems with it. Like, how do you get people to prove they're immune? Do they carry some sort of bus pass or something? More advanced countries like South Korea, who were hit hard by SARS and MERS, have the tools like this to begin with. And they've been using it to great effect. This will probably not be Canada's solution because it's far too late for us to get that equipment. However, I would like to hear talk about this and how to implement it for the next time a pandemic comes running through. Call me naive, but I actually do have faith in the government's ability to manage this in a way that prevents it from becoming a problem after it's a problem. So again, I don't think restaurants should be hoping for an early end to social isolation because that would create a new problem that would last longer than the virus. I bring this up because there's a lot of high-profile restaurateurs and chefs publicly worrying. After this is over, restaurants will never be the same. I do think this will change the restaurant landscape in a way that's hard to predict, but there's definitely no way it doesn't have any effect. I just don't think it will be as dramatic as some people are making it seem. Many of these people are Americans, and they have a whole different set of problems that I'm not going to talk about here. What I am going to do is address this concern from an Ottawa perspective, one that I hope is a little bit more optimistic. Ottawa is a unique and, at the moment, very lucky city. A massive chunk of our population is stuck at home, still being paid. It might not bring you much comfort if you're a laid-off server or cook to find out that some 35-hour-a-week govy is sitting at home making sourdough for fun while still cashing checks. Meanwhile, you're on your last pack of ramen noodles waiting for Trudeau's 2 k to show up in your bank account and dodging phone calls from your landlord. But the good news is that when things get back to normal, there will be customers to fill the spaces. I find it a little ironic that the same sleepy government town reputation that Ottawa has is actually gonna work in our favor and going to be what saves our art and food culture during and after this epidemic. The people who worry about the long-term damage have two concerns. The first is that this will fundamentally alter human behavior in a way that renders restaurants unprofitable. People will keep social distancing after they don't have to. I really can't see this happening. You'd have to know nothing about human history or even specifically the history of pandemics to hold this position. The Spanish flu of 1918 and 1920 killed some 50 million people around the globe and sickened an estimated 500 million. The flu circled the globe twice and ravaged societies for two full years. This absolutely had a negative effect on the economy, but that was mainly because it killed a large chunk of the male working class right after the war that also killed a large chunk of the male working class. Despite this trauma, people in general did not wildly change their gathering patterns. Human behavior is baked into us through evolution and is extremely hard to change. If the Spanish flu didn't wildly change our social structure, this won't either. Humans are slow and weak compared to other animals. Our advantage is that we are smart and we're good at working together. All of our gathering patterns result from this instinct that keeps us alive for 10,000 years, and it's not going to change now. From a restaurant point of view, this is a good thing. It's also deeply problematic to suggest that we should socially distance after the pandemic subsides, and that brings me to the next concern. There are people in our industry who worry that the government might further limit the amount of people allowed in a given public space. An example of this, a restaurant with 55 seats would have to go down to 35 or something. That this could happen is not out of the question, and if it did, it would end restaurants as a business concept on the spot. But I would argue this is insanely unlikely for reasons that become immediately obvious if you just think about it. Any legislation that would limit crowding people into small spaces would effectively outlaw not just restaurants, but theaters, all of public transit, almost all office buildings, elevators, bars and nightclubs. Doug Ford would have to limit class sizes and universities would have to stop lectures. Concerts would be a thing of the past. So would professional sports. Air travel would be done and therefore most of the world's tourist industries. On and on. Arbitrarily picking one industry makes no sense. It ignores all the ways that social distancing efforts forced on that industry are completely undone by almost every other aspect of our society. Again, I can't predict how the governments are going to react, but I hope no one is stupid enough to focus on social distancing as the problem when the dust settles from this. Global pandemics are not going away, and the idea that we can stop them from spreading by altering our behavior is laughable. There are people currently freaking about Chinese wet markets, and they're completely missing the point. Even if your opinion of wet markets wasn't rooted mostly in ignorance and racism, getting rid of them does nothing to prevent the next pandemic. The most likely place of origin for the Spanish flu of 1918 and 1819 was a field hospital and troop staging area for UK soldiers in France. After that, the leading theory is a plantation in Kansas. Either way, the lesson is that anywhere humans have contact with animals, the field hospital had pigs in pens, the possibility of a zoontological pathogen exists. And the other thing is, influenza is not the only kind of pandemics we have to worry about. Remember Zika? The next disease might be vectored by insects or rodents like the plague. Instead of a viral mist spreading a respiratory disease like our current situation, the next one could be spread by fecal oral root and cause deadly diarrhea. And then instead of face masks and ventilators, we'll be scrambling to get more adult diapers and whatever machine helps keep you dying from shitting yourself to death. The point is, I hope we don't spend a minute trying to prevent another coronavirus, because the next disease might not be at all like this. Instead, we need to properly fund our health infrastructure from the bottom to the top. The lesson that we should learn is that every person in the public health chain is extremely important. From the public health officer at the top, public health agency, all the way down to cleaners of the hospitals, the doctors, the nurses, the MPs in between. If one link in the chain is weak, underfunded, or under-equipped, then the whole thing is useless. That is the issue here. That is where the focus needs to be after all of this. If you find yourself complaining about air travel, wet markets, social distancing, or anything like this afterwards, you're wasting your time. That's like trying to get rid of an ant infestation by squishing them with your thumb. This time we had to flatten the curve so we did not exceed hospital capacity. Hopefully the next time hospitals have more capacity so we don't have to completely shut everything down in order to limbo under a pathetically low bar. How does all this affect restaurants? It means if the government has its priorities straight after all this, they will see us for what we truly are tax generation machines. Our entire business model is an elaborate scheme to exchange food and wine for HST and income tax. When we buy wine from the LCBO, we pay tax. And when we sell it to you, you pay tax. And the server who brings it to you is being taxed every step. And the cooks get taxed and you get the point. Let's not forget that income tax was introduced to pay for the First World War. And it looks like it's going to have to pay for the war against the coronavirus as well. To pay for improvements that clearly need to be made to our health system, and to pay back the billions being bored to keep the economy alive, we're going to need small and medium-sized businesses to reopen and thrive after all this. This brings me to the final worst-case scenario. What if my restaurant closes? What if your restaurant closes? If you own or work in a restaurant, none of this matters to you if your business closes. I'm really worried this is going to happen to a lot of places, and I'm currently not sure if North and Navy won't be one of them. As I mentioned earlier, there are so many variables that play into this. And I think that restaurant community is going to be really surprised when very popular places that look successful from the outside don't reopen. A lot of this has to do with how much debt a given place had before the shutdown or what their relationship with their landlord is like. Debt is just a bill every month. So far all the government has offered is more debt, which means another bill after we reopen and try to rebuild our business from the ground up. Today, it was announced that there will be rent assistance for small business, but there were very little details about how this would look. The amount of time I spent scrambling through government websites, news articles, and Reddit threads trying to decode some new financial assistance formula has been crazy, and I suspect we're nowhere near the end of that. If I were to have one major criticism of how all this was handled, aside from Doug Ford telling everyone to go on March break, it was how long they dragged their feet on rent assistance. It was well within their powers to declare a break on rent and announce some form of aid to the landlords after the fact. This action would have immediately released a ton of pressure from small businesses, as rent would have been the largest expense for most of them after labor, but since they laid everyone off, labor's not an expense anymore. This brings me to a little bit of a rant that I inherited from my brother. He points out to me that many of the people who are preaching tough love to small businesses are the people who defend landlords who are demanding rent at a time when they will likely bankrupt the business. Out of one side of their mouth, they go on about how business world is risky and we should have done our homework before getting involved. And then they defend rent as if it's some God-given right. An income property is also an investment and also a business. To me, it makes no sense that the tenant should bear all the weight of this crisis. If I'm putting myself in the shoes of the government and I had to pick a side here, the tenant is the obvious winner. A restaurant contributes far more tax dollars to the coffers than the building itself. In fact, many commercial lease agreements force the tenant to pay the property tax as well. Also, it's hard to come up with a viable business idea, and the people capable of doing it are few and far between. If all the businesses go bankrupt, there will be huge lag before new viable ones take their place. If a bunch of landlords have to give the buildings back to the bank, the tenants can just pay the rent to the bank until someone else buys the building. Letting the landlords fail is far less disruptive to the economy than letting businesses fail. I really don't think we have to make this choice, and there's definitely a way for both sides to share the disruption and live to pay taxes another day. I hate to sound like some tax-hating libertarian because that's definitely not my politics, but all this is forcing the industry to take a good, hard look at itself and actually maybe feel proud for a second about the contributions we make to our society, the jobs we create, the public spaces we offer. Our unique form of entertainment adds richness to any city, and we should not hesitate to ask for what we need to get through this. I have no idea what the help is going to look like, but what I do know is the current situation is not good enough. If this is it, a $40,000 loan a lot of restaurants of all different shapes and sizes will not reopen their doors. Simple as that. Just off the top of my head, how are all the places closed going to afford the inventory it takes to reopen? If those places close, where are all the cooks and servers going to work? That is exactly how you turn a recession into a depression. I don't think the government wants things to go this way. And I want the overall message of this podcast to be positive because there's enough worry to go around right now. So I'd like to recap, despite the fact that we're in this for the long haul, and a lot longer than most of us thought we were when the whole thing began. Given everything we know about human nature, people will crave social settings when all this is over, and all of us can get back doing what we love, providing a space for them to do that. Our current government is giving no evidence that they will break with the science and try to end this early, creating a terrifying second wave and undermining public faith in their ability to keep us safe. There is also good reason to be optimistic that the government, provincial and federal, will not try and pass some social disting laws that would ultimately be ineffective unless they were prepared to radically change every other aspect of our society. Finally, the government seems to be aware of the economic disaster that could result if tens of thousands of small businesses fail across the country. Restaurants make up a massive chunk of this segment of the economy and, as I mentioned earlier, collect a disproportionately high level of tax dollars. Those are going to be important for the rebuild. There are so many things that remain to be seen, but I hope this gives some people a reason to feel a little more hopeful during this horrible ordeal. That's all for now, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to At The Pass. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a nice review. And feel free to get in touch. My email is adam at com.